This is Bite Sized Blessings. Hello everyone, happy Friday and welcome to episode 3 of Bite Sized Blessings. This is the podcast that offers you a 15 minute devotional thought to anchor your week and strengthen your Christian walk. Today's text, we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Today's text is taken from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. It's it's a little bit of reading, um, but it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Exodus 1, chapter, Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, and feel free to follow along with me in whatever version you have. The text reads like this. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shipra and the other was named Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This text marks the beginning of the Israelite subjugation at the hands of the Egyptians. See, Joseph has died. Uh, The entire generation of him and his brothers and sisters have all passed on. This was Joseph, the man with the prophetic dreams, Joseph, the, the foresight, Joseph, who not only saved Egypt from famine, but also the whole surrounding area. Joseph, who rose from a slave to become vice president, Joseph has died. And verse eight says that now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And I think the first thing that jumps out to me with this text is how the Israelite subjugation was initially grounded in xenophobia. Uh, This new king of Egypt has little respect for history. He fears the Israelite other 
that has come to live in his kingdom. Listen to how he attempts to justify this genocide. The first thing the king says is, they are more numerous and powerful than us. Okay, well, historically speaking, this is almost certainly like royal propaganda. Pharaoh is telling the Egyptian press secretary to release a statement designed to incite nationalistic fears within the common Egyptian and other the Israelites. And you might think that in such a situation, he would just simply kick them out the country, you know, tell them to go somewhere else. But no, 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 he doesn't do that, right? Pharaoh doesn't want the Israelites gone. He wants them disempowered stripped of agency. Verse 10 is really specific. I'm going to read it one more time. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh wants to exploit these people, to use them for what they can do without treating them how they deserve. And what's crazy about this relationship is that it, it begins at first um, symbiotically, right? It began on almost equal power. It began with the Egyptians and the Israelites really helping each other. Joseph was a Hebrew, and through him, the entire Egyptian nation was saved. Thus, Joseph became a part of the governing body. He was royalty. And yet, as time goes on, what was once a partnership dissolves into ostracizing and othering and demonizing and, and slavery, all stoked through nationalistic fears. And I'm about to take a leap. I know this is random, but this text really reminds me of the three-fifths compromise in United States history, right? So what is the three-fifths compromise? There's this thing in the United States called the House of Representatives. It's one of the houses of Congress. And each state sends a representative to the house, uh, and the amount of representatives a state gets is based on the population of that state. That you get uh, one representative for a certain amount of people who live there, right? So the more people you have living in your state, the more representatives you can send to the house, the more influential and powerful that state is as it's represented in the house. Right. So like right now, California, I believe, has 53 representatives in the House of Representatives and Kansas has four based on population. OK, well, so here's the thing. When they were making the union right originally and figuring out how many representatives each state would get to send to the House, the southern states wanted to include their population of black slaves in their population count for, you know, how much, how many representatives they could send, right? And that's kind of like evil, right? Think about it. They wanted to use the presence of black bodies to boost how much power they would have in the house, even though those black bodies would not then benefit at all from the representation in the house, well, the northern states didn't like that very much. They didn't want the slaves to count at all, right? Um, but don't think this is some type of moral reason, right? There was no morality behind this. The northern states just didn't want to cede that much power to the southern states. So what are they going to do? The southern states want to count their slaves. 
as part of their population, the northern states don't want the slaves to count at all. Well, they settled on a compromise, a three-fifths compromise. The South didn't count all of us, but they could count some. They could count three-fifths of us. And if that sounds crazy to you, the same thing sort of happens today. But instead of slaves, it's prisoners, right? Counties and states can count prisoners toward their population in state houses, even though these prisoners can't vote, even though these prisoners are not affected by minimum wage laws. Uh, like out here in California, a prisoner can fight fires while they're in prison. They can be a firefighter while they're in prison, and they get paid the grand sum total of a dollar an hour, and that is one of the highest pay rates they can possibly earn while incarcerated. Right? This is why counties often fight for the privilege of having prisons built within them, because the counties can use the population of the prison to increase their representation in the state house but not provide any benefit to the prisoners from that representation. This is the logic of Pharaoh's choice, right? Pharaoh does not want to expel the Israelites. He didn't want them gone. He wanted them present, but disempowered. Okay, all right, back to my text, point number two. I'm going to reread verse 12. Verse 12 says, but the more they were oppressed. <laughs> my God, oh my. <laughs> the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. This is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. It's at least top two. I love this. And you got to sort of be of a certain age, right? Or have a certain life perspective to appreciate the beauty of this verse. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. You can't, you don't get that when you're young. You don't get that until you get some perspective. And it's, I think it's one of those texts that it, you have to sort of experience it yourself before you see the power of it, the beauty of it. This is a classic God move, right? This is a classic God move where God will take the thing that was supposed to take you out and use it to fortify you. I love that. And, and I think it's important, too, that we do not sanitize the thing that is supposed to take us out, right? This isn't, that thing is not a blessing in and of itself, right? Slavery is still slavery. Subjugation is still subjugation. Oppression is still oppression. I don't want to have us think that we cannot call that thing evil just because God used it to make us stronger, right? But we can also acknowledge the beauty and the blessing and how God flipped that thing to turn the evil thing into something that is beneficial. That gives me hope. That makes me think when I see a really trash situation that I didn't earn, 
um, I can say, okay, God, what are you going to do with this? How can you flip this? And it almost becomes, I won't say it's a game, but it's almost like, all right, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, Lord. What's up? What you going to do? I really appreciate that. Okay, I'm off. I'm off. Next text. Next text. Uh, verses 15 through 17. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. Most of us, I think, understand the story of Exodus to be the story of Moses. And maybe to a lesser extent, Aaron. I think most of us interpret the story of Exodus to be the story of Moses. And, and to some extent, that makes sense, right? Moses is definitely like the protagonist of the story, right? He's definitely the main character um, with what's happening in Exodus. However, the Israelite rebellion did not start with Moses. The Israelite liberation didn't start with Moses. The people of God in Egypt rebelled, first rebelled, by the decision of two women, Shipra and Pua, who defied the orders of Pharaoh, an unnamed Pharaoh. I think there's shade there that we get the names of Shipra and Pua and Moses and Joseph, but the Pharaoh who forgot who Joseph was, we don't get his name. I think that's like biblical shade. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know that these names are, are not very well known. Moses, I know. Aaron, I know. Joseph, I know. Shipra and Pua, I, I do not know very well. We are not given much information about these women in the text, uh, but we do know that they feared God and refused to carry out Pharaoh's order. And the really brave and courageous thing about that is that they defied that order knowing that they were eventually going to be caught, right? You can't do something like that. You're ordered to commit a genocide and, you know, the, Pharaoh's going to find out at some point. So this is, this is defiance with a, with a limit on it. And it just, man, they knew they were going to get caught. They knew it and they did it anyway. And like, I don't know. I, I like to ask questions of the text. I like to, 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 to seek out the story here. I wonder, like, how did they sleep knowing what they were doing? Knowing that any wayward cry, any stray wail would potentially wake some guards and they're found out. I wonder if they told anybody. I wonder if they confided in anyone about the seriousness and the dangerous the dangers of what they were doing in my head i see them like haggard and tired and resigned to their fate but also fatalistically determined right i wonder if did they have hope that pharaoh would change his mind or did they sort of accept that they were going to get caught and face the consequences 
I don't know. But these are the things I like to think about when I read. I like to just pause and just dive into the emotions of what the characters are doing and, and ask. And what's what's really interesting to me, especially, is how they hid their crime, right? So Pharaoh, at some point, he figures out that they're not killing the boys. And when uh, he brings the midwives back to him and asks them, you know, why did they let the boys live? They say, and this is a quote, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get there. This is beautiful. This is a masterstroke of rhetorical argument. The Hebrew midwives brilliantly use Pharaoh's nationalistic fears against him, right? They turn and weaponize his own racial biases. They make it seem like the Hebrew women are somehow so different from the Egyptian women that they can't even get there in time, right? They, they use the othering that Pharaoh has already employed. And in doing so, they cast the first stone against Egyptian bondage. Not Moses, not Aaron. The Israelite exodus starts here with Shipra and Pua. Hebrew midwives. Long live the revolution. And we're just about through. We're just about through. Um, here's a t my takeaways. There's a saying I do not like. Perhaps you've heard it before. Behind every great man is a great woman. I do not like that saying at all. Here is a better one. Before every great man was a great woman. I would like us to do better, to be intentionally better at recognizing the bravery of women in our lives. I want us to be better at asking them for their stories, listening, and seeing how they've managed to make it thus far in life. Unfortunately, the Bible is often a book of men writing on the perspectives of men. That's just a fact. But when you're reading it, as readers, I want us to be looking for the places where women are mentioned and highlighting it in our minds, stopping and really considering how they are contributing to the story, to make, to make work, to work on the text so that we don't just ride by these, the story of Shipra and Pua and not give them any consideration into how they might fit into our theology, into how they might matter to the greater story. That's it. Um, here are a couple discussion questions. First one, which women in your family are the untold heroes? Which women in your ancestry have exhibited extraordinary bravery in the midst of impossible circumstances? Who are your Shipras and Puas? And here's the second question. Has God ever flipped your situation around so that the thing that was supposed to oppress you ended up being the thing that multiplied you? And remember, we're not calling that thing a good thing. It was an evil thing. It was an oppressive thing. It was a subjugating thing. But God was able to step in and flip that thing around. Classic, classic God move. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you so much for leaving examples of brave women 
in the scripture. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to read these stories and be inspired to act bravely in our own lives. I pray, Lord, that you allow us to read these stories and become curious about which women in our lives, which women in our history have made substantial contributions doing courageous things that we do not know because the story of Moses is so loud and so often told. Lord, I pray that you make us brave. You make us as brave as Shipra and Pua. Amen. Thank you all for joining me. This has been Bite Sized Blessings. You can find Bite Sized Blessings on basically all the podcasts. We are on Apple. We are on Spotify. We are on Google Podcasts. We are on TuneIn Radio. We have a YouTube channel. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at at Bite Sized Bless, B-I-T-E-S-I-Z-E-D. B-L-E-S-S. You can follow me on Twitter at Chuck Rock, C-H-U-K-R-O-X-X. And I will see you all next time. This has been episode three of Bite-Sized Blessings.